The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Good morning, church family. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 is where we're going to be at for our scripture reading this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 for our Bible study. Well, last week, Pastor preached a message uh, looking at the law of sowing and reaping. And as we uh, looked into the Word of God and looked at some examples, we saw how that the law of sowing and reaping is a common law that applies to both uh, believers and unbelievers, much like the law of gravity applies to everybody, the law of sowing and reaping applies to everybody. And we saw some examples of that. We saw that throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, but this morning, what we're going to look at applies specifically to believers. This morning, our text, last week we saw it's believers and unbelievers. This week, it's specifically speaking to believers. So if you're here today and you're still seeking and you're like, man, I'm still kind of weighing you out. I haven't yet put my faith and trust in Christ. I'm so thankful that you're here. You are our honored guest. We have a gift for you. Uh, but if you plug in some headphones right now, you are not going to offend me. Uh, you, you don't need to do that. I hope it'll be a blessing and encouragement. But just so we're all on the same page, what we're talking about applies specifically to believers. And specifically, the book of First and Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing this book. This church is located in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And as Paul's writing uh, these epistles, these letters to these churches, he has a lot of what I like to call family talk with them. He just gets real with these churches. In the first book, he's writing to them, and he's like, hey, you guys are holy, you're sanctified, you're justified, maybe live like it? <laughs> That's kind of the first book. And in the second book, he's really encouraging them. And the Apostle Paul, he just kind of shoots straight with this church. He really uh, speaks very plainly, doesn't really pull any punches, and he just speaks in a straightforward manner, and he gets really real with this church. And so this morning, as we work through chapter number eight and chapter number nine, uh, my goal is just to work through this in a straightforward uh, fashion, just like the Apostle Paul does, and I think we will all be encouraged and helped by it. Now, as we are going to look at these two chapters of Scripture, we're going to notice this theme emerge, and that theme is the grace of God produces generous giving. The grace of God produces generous giving. These past several weeks, we've been going through a series laying a foundation for a biblical worldview of our finances. What does the Bible say about how we should think about our money? What does the Bible say about how our finances affects our heart? How should we interact with it? What needs to be our mindset? What needs to be our worldview of how we deal with our finances, and we've been looking at what the Bible says in the series called Taking Inventory. And um, this morning, with that foundation laid, with that worldview, we're going to uh, study these uh, passages in a message titled, The Grace of Giving. Now, the Apostle Paul jumps right into it, so that's what we're going to do this morning. And as he starts these two chapters, dealing specifically with this topic of giving, he brings up two examples of giving generously. And that's our first thought this morning. The Apostle Paul gives the examples to give generously in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And the first example he gives are the churches of Macedonia. Now, the region of Macedonia would have in, uh, included several churches that we would be familiar with. If you've read through uh, the New Testament, you'll be familiar with the book of Philippians. One of the churches in Macedonia was the church at Philippi. You can see that there on the map, ancient Greece. Uh, one of those churches was Philippi. One of those churches was in the city of Thessalonica. Paul wrote specifically to them in First and Second Thessalonians. And then Paul also mentions in the book of Acts one of these churches, and that is the church of Berea. These are the three local churches that are in the region of Macedonia that the Apostle Paul is referring to. And as he's giving this example of what generosity looks like, he brings to our attention 
several characteristics of these churches. And the first characteristic that I want to point out is the Apostle Paul shows us that the grace of God was doing an incredible work in these believers and in these churches. Look at in verse number one. He starts right out. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, as you study out these churches, these churches were happening places. The grace of God was on the move. People were getting saved. Lives were being changed. They were reaching unbelievers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, every time Paul directly writes to one of these churches or mentions them, he gives them glowing recommendations. And he has tons of great things to say about these churches. God's grace was doing some amazing things. And that's why these churches were able to be so generous. You see, everything we're going to look at this morning, it all hinges on the grace of God. And that's why we've called this message, the grace of giving. Paul brings this up again in chapter 9, verse number 8. He says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So we see the grace of God is what produces generous living. That's exactly what we see in this churches. But I want you to notice what he also says about them in verse number two. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, talking to the church of Corinth, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Verse two, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now that sentence with our American Western mind, it makes no sense. How could they be, have, how could they have abundant joy but be in extreme poverty and then be radically generous? Like it, it doesn't make sense. We don't normally use abundant joy and extreme poverty to describe the same person at the same time. If you're like me, when the funds are a little low, so is the joy. But when the grace of God is working in a church and in a person, you could be in extreme poverty. You could be going through affliction and trial, and there can be abundant joy because of the grace of God. These churches had all been born in affliction. Uh, if you go back and read Acts 16 and 17, where all these churches got started, uh, Acts 16, the Apostle Paul and Silas, they're witnessing there. They get involved in a ladies' prayer meeting. I don't know if that was allowed, but they did it. And they started the church at Philippi through a ladies' prayer meeting. And then the Jews got upset, and they stoned them, and they persecuted them. And so the Apostle Paul, man, they escape that, and then they go and they start the church in Thessalonica. And these Jews, they get upset because the Apostle Paul and Silas, they're reaching all these Greeks, and the Jews are like, uh-uh, no thank you. And then they go and persecute them and throw them in jail. Same thing in Berea. These churches were born in persecution. I mean, there was no get acquainted meetings. There was no celebration launch party. This is not the way we would draw up starting a church in the year 2019. And they were poor. Not only were they suffering affliction, they were extremely poor. Yet get this, the grace of God was doing such a work in them that in verse 3 and 4 tells us that they begged Paul to be a part of this offering. Paul is taking this offering for the believers in Jerusalem, and he's going to all these churches saying, hey, would you get through your church so that we could go and minister to the saints at Jerusalem? And the churches in Macedonia, they get wind of it, and they're like, Paul, can we be a part? And I could just imagine Paul being like, you guys are broke. But no, the Bible says they begged Paul. No, you don't understand, Paul. God is doing such a work in our heart. We, we want to give. Please let us be a part of these offerings. To the point where he says they gave beyond their ability. Paul's like, nobody would have thought they could have given this much. And I think as we jump into verse 5, we're going to see the key to that. Verse number 5 says, and not just as we had hoped, instead, get this, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. You see, the grace of God had done such a work in their heart 
Like, God had all of them. There was no part of their life that was off limits to God. They were so transformed by the grace of God and so in love with Jesus that they were like, God, everything about me is you. Every, everything of mine is yours. God, you have all of me. They gave themselves first. Because of the grace of God, it did not matter that they were poor. They were just like, we want to give. It didn't matter that they were suffering affliction. They just wanted to give. Because of the grace of God, affliction and limited financial resources did not hinder their radical generosity because they had already gave themselves to God. God, everything about me is yours. And so when the opportunity presented itself to be generous, they were like, we are all in. Uh, Albert Barnes, he said, they first made an entire consecration of themselves and all that they had. Everything this church, he's talking about these churches, everything that they had, they've given as an offering to the Lord. They kept nothing back, he said. They felt that all that they had was his. And he goes on and says, where people honestly and truly devote themselves to God, they will find no difficulty in having the means to contribute to the cause. These churches, they had given everything to God because of the grace of God had done such a work in their heart. And at the point God had all of them, they could be radically generous. They were so overwhelmed with the grace of God, and they allowed his grace to fill their hearts and their minds to the point like, God, everything, it's, it's all you. Nothing, uh, uh, nothing that is in my realm is mine. God, it's all yours. And right off the bat in these first few verses, the Apostle Paul, he's wanting to showcase to the church at Corinth, and he's wanting to showcase to us today, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what the grace of God can do. Now, between these two examples, parts, Paul starts to address the Corinthians. And as he's giving this illustration of the churches in Macedonia, he begins to take this illustration and then make application specifically to the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 7, look, you guys are excelling in so much, in faith, in speech, in knowledge. You guys are hard workers. You're diligent. You love us. Paul says, I want you to excel in this grace also. I want you to experience the grace of God like the churches at Macedonia. I want you to experience grace in giving. Now, the first part of chapter 8 gets quoted a lot, especially by people looking uh, for a loophole out of giving. You say, what is this verse that gives some people a loophole out of giving? I want to know. Look at verse number 8, the first part of the verse. Paul says, I'm not saying this as a command. So there's people like, look, Pastor Nick, he says right there, this isn't a command. We don't have to give. I'm off the hook. This isn't something God is telling us to do. And there's even debate about whether or not Christians under the New Testament should tithe. That's Old Testament. We're not under that. But I want to draw to your attention what Jesus says in Luke uh, 11, verse 42. He's interacting with the Pharisees, as he often did. And as he often did with the Pharisees, he cut through their external behaviors to get to their heart. And he says in Luke eleven forty-two, 42, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These tithing ought to have been done without neglecting the others. Love of God and caring about people, that's what justice is about. You see, one of the reasons Jesus offended so many people in his day, and the reason he still offends people even today, is because he constantly presses the gospel message to the level of our heart. God sees our heart, not just the external behaviors that we hide behind. And as Jesus is calling out the Pharisees here, he's not, he's not calling them out for tithing off every little thing. He's calling them out for tithing off of their spice cabinet to the, hide the fact that they don't love God. He's saying, you guys are using this law to hide behind the fact that you don't love me and that you don't care about me. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians is he's removing what we sometimes will hide behind. Look at the rest of verse number 8. Paul says, I'm not saying this as a command. Jesus himself said, look, you should tithe. That's a good thing, but don't hide behind your tithing. 
Paul says, I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others. There's other people that are sacrificing. There's other people that are giving. There's other people that are giving abundantly, even in their poverty. By means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Paul says, I'm not going to tell you guys what to do. It's not a command. I just want to see if your love is real. You see, we tend to fall into one or two extremes, don't we? Either we hide behind the rules like the Pharisees. Okay, tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go hide behind it. Or we're like, well, it's not a command, so I don't have to do anything. But the Apostle Paul, he cuts straight to the heart, and he eliminates both of those tendencies. And he says, I am testing to see if your love for God is real. He says this again in chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Paul is saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I mean, the apostle, he was an apostle. He saw the risen Christ. He received direct revelation from God. He could have. But he's like, I'm not going to tell you guys what to do. I'm not going to give you some command because I want to get straight to your heart. Many of us would be familiar with the missionary Amy Carmichael. She was born December 16th, 1980, excuse me, 1867. And we know her today as a famous missionary, but in many ways, she seemed like an unlikely candidate for missionary work. She suffered from neuralgia, which is a disease of the nerves that would make her whole body weak and achy and often lay her up in bed for weeks on end. But in 1887, she went to the Keswick Convention and heard Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, speak about missions. And soon afterwards, she became convinced of her calling to go be a missionary. So she went to India, and she served as a missionary for 55 years with no furlough, no going back to her home country, no trying to raise more support, 55 years dedicated to reaching the nation of India. Some of her most notable work was with girls and young women, some of whom were saved from customs that amounted to forced prostitution in the Hindu religion at the time. And this is what she said. She said, you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. And that's, that's what the Apostle Paul is bringing out here. Jesus says, look, you guys, yeah, yeah, you're giving, but you don't love. Now Paul's like, but you can't love without giving. That's why I want to prove the sincerity of your love. I'm testing the genuineness of your love. That's why he emphasizes, I want you to know about the grace of God. Paul just doesn't go to the church in Corinth and says, hey, look what they did. Look how cool they are. No, he says, look what the grace of God can do. Look what the grace of God is doing in these churches. I want you guys to experience that too. I want you guys to experience the grace of God. I want you guys to prove your love is real, just like the churches at Macedonia have. No, I know on the one hand, this is heavy. I mean, Paul is basically saying, if you refuse to give, you're kind of saying, I don't really love God that much, at least in this area of my life. That's heavy. That's kind of weighty. But I want to draw our attention to verse 9, because I think verse 9 can actually give us some gospel liberation. As Paul starts verse 9, he begins to give us our next example of giving generously. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. For you know the grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The next example Paul gives us is Jesus Christ himself. You see, we need a deeper motivation than just some flat command, because if there's just some flat command, we'll, we'll wind up hiding our hearts behind it like the Pharisees did in Luke 11. So what the Apostle Paul does is he appeals to the gospel for that deeper motivation. Uh, one seminary professor said, Jesus' self-sacrifice is an even higher standard of giving. He willingly exchanged all the wealth of his deity for the poverty of the incarnation. See, Jesus didn't just come and give a tenth of himself. Like, yeah, here's my arm and my shoulder. 
No, he gave all of himself. Jesus gave all of himself. He embraced poverty. The scriptures tell us that he didn't have a place to call home. He became homeless. The God of the universe, with all the riches at his control, all the riches that he wants at his command, he became homeless. Why? So that we could be restored to the Father, so that in Christ we could be rich. Church, think about this. Part of your new identity in Christ is you are rich. I know if you're like me, you're like, I wish my bank account would keep up with that. But here's the truth. In Christ, you're rich, church. You're not a pauper. You're a prince. You're not broke. You have all the riches in Christ available at you. You're no longer needy. You're complete in him. You're no longer forgotten. You have an everlasting inheritance. And while, yes, we're strangers here on this earth, and we're sojourners here on this earth, and we're pilgrims, we have an eternal inheritance in paradise waiting for us. Because of Christ, because he willingly gave up everything, because he became poor, once we place our faith and trust in Christ, this verse is telling us, Paul's telling us, is we're rich. Now, sometimes I, I can get so, like, down on myself, and I get so mopey thinking, oh, man, if I just had more. I just, oh, man, I got the short end of the stick. Life's so hard, and woe is me, and I get so down on myself. But at the moment, I mean, you can ask my wife. She will definitely attest to that. Um, but at the moment, we realize how blessed we are. I mean, at church, we are blessed more than what our mortal minds can comprehend. We cannot comprehend the riches that we have available in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, 17, 18, and 19, Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the depth and the height of God's love, and to know Christ's love that passes knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of him. Friends, our natural minds cannot comprehend how loved we are and how rich we are in Christ. Philippians 419, we preached on this a few weeks ago. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. In Christ, you are rich. And when I drop the poor me attitude, when I drop the woe is me, I got the short end of the stick mentality, when I allow the truth that in Christ I am rich and in Christ I am blessed and in Christ I am complete, when I allow that truth, his grace, to be the most real and the most influential truth in my life, earthly possessions start to lose their value. Money doesn't have the hold on my heart it used to do. And now we are free to radically give. Why? Because Jesus is our prize. Jesus is our treasure. Because Jesus is everything. I don't need everything that the world tells me I need. And I am now free to give radically. I am free to be generous. Why? Because in Christ I have all that I need. Jesus' radical act of total self-giving is the only thing that can consistently move us to give beyond the minimum. See, grace giving is not, well, because there's grace, you don't have to give. No, grace giving is because, because there's grace, I can give sacrificially. Because there's grace, I can be radically generous. Uh, one pastor said, if we don't desire to respond to God's grace with sacrificial giving, then we have not yet fully understood the nature of the gospel. You see, the answer to our motivation problem is not adherence to a new command. That's why Paul's not giving us, okay, under grace, tithe 12% or 8%. He's not giving us a new command. What we need is a more thoroughgoing knowledge and experience of the extravagant self-giving of Christ. That's why Paul holds Jesus up as this example. That's why when he's talking about the churches of Macedonia, the emphasis is on the grace of God. What, look, look, look what God's grace is doing. So it's no longer, well, i got to give 10%. It's like, I, I can give everything. I don't have to hold anything back. 
These are the examples of what radical generosity looked like on a street level. Then as we go into verse number 10, the Apostle Paul gives us the reasons for giving generously. So I said, here's, here's what it looks like, church at Corinth. Here's what it looks like, Christians in 2019. Here's what it looks like, church family, to give radically generous in an everyday way. This is what it looks like. Now let me give you some practical on-the-ground reasons for why. We see this in verse number 10 and, and 11 and then chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. The first reason Paul gives, very simply, is this, it's good for you. <laughs> look at, look at chap, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, the first part of the verse. And in this matter, I'm giving advice because it is profitable for you. Very plainly, Paul's like, this is just good for you, church. You see, anytime giving comes up in Scripture, it's never because God needs something. God is God. He don't need a thing. He is self-sustaining. He is God. He needs nothing. In fact, he says in Psalms, if I needed something, I wouldn't tell you guys. God doesn't need anything, but what we see throughout Scripture is that this is actually good for us, and that's been the theme of this entire series. God gives us a biblical worldview of finances, not because God wants something from us, but rather because he wants something for us. And Paul's reiterating this. He says, look, Corinth, this is good for you. It's good for you to give to your church so that the needs of others can be met. It's good for you to give. The next reason he gives us, and this is, he, he kind of calls him out here, but if you read uh, verse 10 and 11, Paul's kind of saying, hey, Corinth, you kind of said you would do this. This is something you guys said you would do. Look at verse 10 and 11, and then we're going to jump to chapter 9 in, uh, in a moment. He says, and in this matter, I'm giving advice because it's profitable for you. It's, this is good for you, church. And then he says, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task. So just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. As Paul's continuing, he's like, look, guys, you said you'd do this a year ago. And he's just kind of being real, real honest, real straightforward with this church. It's Corinth, you guys kind of said you'd do this. It's time to finish it. It's time to do it. This offering had been a long-term project. Apparently, the church of Corinth had made a pretty big commitment. We're going to read in a minute uh, of the first five verses of chapter 9. But they made such a big commitment that other churches in Achaia got stirred up, and they were a part of it. He says uh, in chapter 9, verse 2, For I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Paul's like, you guys made a big commitment, man. And I've been bragging on you so much, so much so, that Achaia, they've been ready since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. Paul's like, your guys' commitment, your promise, it's got other people excited, and now other people are involved. You guys said you would do this. It's time to do it. <laughs> At the beginning of the sermon, I said this is primarily for those that have professed their faith in Christ. If for just a moment I could talk to those in our church family who have formally joined in covenantal membership. You're like, I, I, I'm a member. I've made that covenant. I'm a formal uh, member of covenantal community here at this local church. One of the things that I as a member and we as members have covenanted to do is to sacrificially give through this local church on a regular basis. And if I could gently and graciously but plainly ask you, are we doing what we said we would do? Say, Pastor Nick, I don't like that kind of question. It's kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying. You guys said you'd do this. It's time we do it. And so for those of us that have said, I am formally joined in covenantal community. This is my church home. I am a part of this body. I am locked and loaded. We said that we would radically and sacrificially and regularly give. Are we allowing the grace of God to do such a work in our heart that we're doing that? Look at the first five verses of chapter 9. 
Paul says, now concerning the ministry of the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you. Paul's like, I don't have to, I don't have to tell you all that's going on in Jerusalem. You guys know what's going on. For I know your eagerness. I know you guys are ready. And I boast about you to the Macedonians. We just read this. Okay, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. Verse 3, but I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this manner would not prove empty. And so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance this generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not an extortion. The Apostle Paul's like, look, guys, I've been bragging on you. I've been telling everybody about the grace of God that's going on in your church and how far you've come. I mean, think about the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. He's like, you guys are saved, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're holy. It's probably not a good idea to sleep with the wife of your dad. Like, that's, that's 1 Corinthians. And now he's like, you guys have come so far. We've been bragging about the grace of God. You guys are growing by leaps and by bounds. Don't let me down now. <laughs> if we come to take this offering and you guys aren't ready, it's going to be awkward. <laughs> that's what he's saying. We, not to mention you, would be put to shame. Paul's like, look, guys, I'm sending these other brothers. I'm sending Titus and these other brothers. They're really well known. Their gospel ministry has impacted lots of people. I'm sending them on ahead so that they can get you guys ready to take this offering. Please don't let me down. You see, Paul intended to arrive at Corinth after Titus and these two other brothers did uh, when time so this collection could be made. That's why he's sending these other guys ahead so that they could get the offering ready. And by the time the collection would be ready, he would be there so that he could take it to Jerusalem. This is exactly what happened. If you read Romans 15, 25, 26, and 27, Paul actually talks about this. And you may not realize this, but Paul actually wrote the book of Romans when he got to this church to take this offering. Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. Now, at the end of these verses, there's a phrase there, a gift and not an exhortation, so that I will be ready as a gift and not an exhortation. This could be translated literally a blessing and not a matter of greed. In other words, this giving was to be done because it would benefit others without the givers thinking of getting something back, material in return. See, Paul's like, I want you guys to be ready. I want this to be a gift that's free with no expectation of return. I don't want to get there, and it becomes this last-minute thing, and then all of a sudden you have this expectation that you're going to get something back. Paul's saying, you guys said you would do this, so we're, we're, we're helping you to get ready to do this. The next reason Paul gives them is so that there would be equality amongst the brethren. Look at, uh, go back to chapter 8, verses, we're going to read 12 through 15. So that there would be equality among the brethren. He says, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. So Paul is saying, look, once we understand how rich we are in Christ, once we understand that we have all that we have in Jesus and how amazing that is and how, grace, how awesome his grace is and how rich we are, we're going to be moved to take the extra that we have and use it to meet other people's needs. We will give so that others can know Christ and their needs can be met. When I realize how full I am in Christ, the, the natural default is, hey, man, I got all this extra stuff. Let me, let me use that so other people can know Christ and so that other people's needs can be met. 
And here's the truth. Sometimes we're tempted to think, well, I don't really have any abundance. So I really, we saw a couple weeks ago, we all are, have abundance. If you look at the global economy, we're all in that top 1%. So all of us have abundance. We can't use this as a loophole to say, well, I, I don't have any abundance. We all are rich in Christ. We all have abundance. We all are in that top 1% of the global economy. And Paul is saying, use that abundance. Use that amazing material gifts that you've been blessed with as Americans to help meet other people's needs. This is why we give to missions through our local church. We give and we sacrifice and then we send those resources to our missionaries so that they can meet the, uh, the needs of those people in those countries and they can win them to Jesus. This is what we see the church at Jerusalem doing in Acts chapter number 2. I've got extra. I'm going to sell my extra. I'm going to give it as an offering to the church so that my church can meet the needs of the members and those in the community. The Bible says if you have food and you have clothing, you have enough. Not even good food or nice clothing. If you have food and clothing, you have enough. So church, here's the truth. All of us have abundance. All of us can be a part of this because God has so richly blessed us. And the grace of God will lead us to use our abundance so that the needs of the church can be met, so the needs of the community can be met, ultimately so that people will come to know Jesus. And then the last reason that Paul gives is this offering is being taken with integrity. If you read uh, 8, 16 through 23, Paul just, he goes to great lengths to show this church this offering is being taken with a lot of integrity. It's being above board, not just in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of man. This is a big offering, and we want it to be done with above board. And the reason is, 2 Corinthians 8, 19, Paul says, and not only that, but he also was appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord. See, giving that flows as a result of the grace of God brings glory to God. When I allow the grace of God to do such a work in my heart, and I'm regularly, faithfully, sacrificially giving, that honors God. That brings glory to God. That demonstrates that God has supreme value in my life. It ascribes worth to him. It demonstrates to those in our lives that we value God more than just what we, what we can say or what we can sing, but actually with our finances. I value God above all else. Regular, generous giving declares that God is more valuable than anything in my life. And integrity with finances is so important because this offering brings glory to God. And so Paul is saying, we want to be above board with it. We want this to be done right. That's why here at our church, there's lots of policies and procedures about how the offering gets handled. It's never at any given stage from the time you put in the offering plate to the time it goes to the bank, left with just one person. That's why we use an outside booking, bookkeeping company. That's why there's all these you know, rules, if you will, about who can even be a part of this. Because this brings glory to God, and so we want to handle it with integrity we want to do what's right not just before god but also in the eyes of others so as paul he gives us these two examples this is what generosity looks like and then he gives them just real practical on the ground reasons for why the church can be okay with being a part of this offering and then next we're going to see the outcome of giving generously if you look at chapter 9 verses 16 through 14 we're going to see the outcome paul says this is what giving looks like this is why, there's some reasons why we can do it. Now let's talk about what is this offering going to accomplish? What is it going to do? And you know what the first result that Paul shares is? Blessings. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Now we understand, we don't give because what we get out of it. We don't give so we can get a blessing. Paul's already handled that. But Paul's also very upfront and tells him, look, when you guys give generously, you're going to reap generously. You are going to have blessings. I don't know about you, but I want to reap generously. I, 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 
yeah, those blessings sound good to me. So Paul said, what is the outcome of giving generously? We're going to be blessed. He goes on to say in verse number seven that God loves it when his children are generous. Look at verse number seven. He says, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. As a dad, I love it when my kids share. Now, it doesn't happen often. I think we got a picture up on the screens. This is Michael and Brooklyn. These are our two middle children. If you know these kids, they're really serious about their food. At Connection Group, they both just walk around and ask anybody with a plate for food. And just kind of walk around like little birds going, oh, can I have some? And so they're, they're serious about it. So they don't share their food. But the other day at breakfast, they were sharing. And as a dad, it just gave me all the warm fuzzies. I'm like, yes, they're getting it. They love each other. They're not just pushing each other down the stairs and punching each other. You know, they actually do. They do love each other. As a dad, I love it when my kids share. And what Paul is telling us in verse 7 is, your heavenly father loves it. He loves it when his kids are generous. He loves it. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I can't give cheerfully, so I'm not going to give. It says right there, we, we, we should give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. I can't be cheerful, so I'm not going to do it. Can I just ask graciously, but can I ask why not? Why can't you give cheerfully? If you're here and you're just like, man, I, I, I can't give cheerfully, so I just don't do it. Maybe start peeling back the layers of your heart and start saying, what is in my life that's blocking the grace of God? I know this is a result of grace. We see it in Scripture. I know it's a result of living by faith. We see it in Scripture. I know God loves it. This brings him glory. So what, what is blocking the grace of God? What is keeping you from giving cheerfully? Paul very clearly says God loves it when his kids are generous. Now, Paul also does say it's each one has decided in his heart. So if there's a person and they're faithfully and regularly and sacrificially giving, they don't need to feel bad if somebody else in the church is giving more. We say all the time it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. So if you're here and you're like, I, 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 I am faithfully giving. I am regularly giving. I, I, I am sacrificial. It's an act of faith. I don't know, but God always seems to come through. And that's you. you don't need to feel bad because somebody down the aisle can do more. Paul's saying is each one has decided in his heart. But because of the gospel, our giving should never be compulsory. It means it shouldn't have to be forced on us. We shouldn't be forced to give. But a willing gift. We shouldn't give out of obligation like, oh, I've got to do it. I've got to put that offer in the plate so nobody thinks I don't love God. It shouldn't be obligation. We give abundantly because God's grace is being worked into our hearts. His grace becomes this fountain within us, and it overflows in generosity. God's grace is a fountain that allows us to do that. The next outcome of gracious giving, Paul says, yes, this is good for you. You're going you're gonna to get blessings. This is good for you. Yes, God loves it when his children are generous. God loves it, just like I as a dad love it when my kids share. God loves it when his children are generous. The next thing he says is God will provide for your needs. Look at verse 9 through 11. As it is written, he, God, distributed freely. He, God, gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. I mean, Pastor said it last week. There are few things that are as exciting as seeing God meet our needs. And we can't always explain it. Like we said last week, we, we don't always understand it. We can't put our finger on how to exactly articulate it. Articulate it. But everybody that has been generous that's experienced this, knows exactly what we're talking about. Because every single one of us has been like, yeah, he just, he, he, he comes through. 
a few months ago, back in January, I told you guys we were going through the process of getting a new roof. And the moment we realized that our roof needed to be fixed and that it was leaking, it was a Sunday night, it was late Sunday night, uh, like all Monday, Sarah and I were kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> we were like, what if our insurance doesn't cover it? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? Like, uh, We got some money in savings, but we don't got that much money in savings. And so there was this element of we were kind of worried. We were kind of stressed out. One of the first things I did was Sunday night, I'm like online Googling 24-hour roofing services in Fresno, California. And believe it or not, there are some. Uh, called the guy at 11 o'clock at night, and he answered the phone. Uh, so Monday morning, first thing, he comes out. He expects my roof. I'm hoping it's just I got to nail those shingles back up when we're good to go. But he gets up there, and he's like, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but the previous owner, he didn't put your roof on right. He didn't nail the shingles on right, and all of your shingles, your roof is slowly sliding off your roof. Like your shingles are all sliding down. He cut all kinds of corners. He didn't put stuff up there that's supposed to be up there. He's like, your roof is a mess, man. And so I'm like, well, that's great. The whole thing needs to be replaced. So we get a hold of our insurance. Finally, after about a week, they send out an inspector. The inspector gets up there, looks at the damage. He says the same thing. Yeah, your roof's falling off. Wasn't done right. Previous owner cut all the corners. And so then I talked with the adjuster multiple times on the phone. I'm trying to explain to him, man, you know, we really need a new roof. Really hoping our insurance covers it. I'm like sending them sad pictures of my children saying, please fix our roof. Just kidding. I didn't do that. But we were like hoping and praying, please let our insurance cover this. Well, after a week or so, the adjuster finally told me, we're going to send out a check to cover the back half of your roof. The part of your roof where the damage was, we're going to cover that. And I thought, great, we can get that fixed. So I start calling roofing companies. I'm calling roofing company after roofing company. I probably talked to five or six different companies. And they all told me the same thing. Look. Previous owner didn't put the shingles on right. They're all sliding off. They cut a bunch of corners. You need a new roof. One guy even said, I'm not even going to give you a quote to fix this thing. This is so bad. He's like, your roof is not going to last another year. You need a new roof. So then at that point, I'm like, all right, let's find a roofing company that can fix the entire thing for the amount the insurance company said would be on the back half. And so we're calling and we're talking to people and we finally find the company. Yes, they're going to fix it for the amount the insurance is sending us. We're good. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Well, then a week goes by, no check. This has already been two or three weeks after the leak. Another week goes by, no check. Three weeks go by, and now at this point, I'm like freaking out, right? I'm like, what is going to happen? I'm calling in, trying to call the adjuster, trying to call the adjuster, not getting any response, not getting any response. Finally, I get a hold of somebody else, and they're like, oh, yeah, your adjuster's on vacation. I'm like, good for her. My roof is leaking. I need something, you know? So I talk to them, and I'm like, hey, look, they told me that this was going to be in the mail. We haven't got the check yet. We're ready to go. And the insurance person was like, oh, your roof's not covered. What? She said, she said, and the lady was like, no, the, 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 the work wasn't done right. We covered if it's just old or if it was like a natural disaster, but your policy does not cover if the work was not done right. I mean, they cut corners. They didn't get permits. Like one guy was like, I think the previous owner gave a case of beer to his friends and said, have at it, um, which looking at it wouldn't surprise me. But in that moment, my heart just sank because I just had six roofers tell me your roof wasn't done right. And so I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. But, I mean, your adjuster said that you guys would be sending a check. And the insurance lady was like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Your roof's not covered. She shouldn't have told you that. That was the end of the phone call. Great. So I hung up the phone. Honestly, church, I was mad. <laughs> I was mad at the situation. I was mad that it wasn't working out. I was feeling like a lousy provider because I'm like, I can't even keep a roof over my kid's head, right? And right in the middle of all this, I get this, uh, I get our year-end giving statement from the church, right? 
So I'm like having this pity party. I can't fix my roof. It's not covered. And then I look at our year in giving statement. I'm like, I could have bought three roofs for that, you know. And at that moment, I just opened up my Bible and I prayed. I had this note-taking Bible. Uh, I think we got a picture of this note-taking Bible that I use in my devotions. And I was praying through the Psalms. And I'm praying and I'm praying. And this one Psalm just grips my heart. And I'm, I'm claiming that Psalm. I'm like, Lord, you know we've been generous. You know we've been faithful. You know we've been given. You know that you're going to, we, we know that you say you'll take care of us, Lord. We, we're, we're believing all that, but I, we need you to come through right now. And I was, I was praying, and I, I normally will write my prayers out in that Bible so I can, you know, see how God answered them and go back and look on it. And I was nervous about writing this prayer because it was so specific. I was like, what if I write this prayer in my Bible and it doesn't get answered? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like every time I get to that psalm, I'm going to be embarrassed. But then the Holy Spirit's like, way to have faith, buddy. Um, so I wrote, I wrote the prayer out, and I'm like, all right, God, this is in your hands. Whatever you want to do, whether it's insurance or not, you're going to take care of us. So I give it all to God. Two hours later, I get a phone call back from our insurance, and they're like, well, our adjuster said that this would be covered, so we have to cover it. Woohoo! right? So I open my Bible up. I write that answer to prayer right in there. God answered this prayer. Two weeks later, we had a brand new roof. It's just church. God takes care of us. When we give, when we're sacrificial, this is a picture of my new roof right now. This means nothing to anybody that drives by, but every time I pull up into my house, I have a little praise party because I'm just like, yeah, I got a new roof, you know? It's exciting. Here's the point. When we live a life of generosity, God will always take care of our needs. There was one point I was having this, I was just down. I was, like, upset about this, right? I'm like, I'm a lousy dad. I can't keep a roof over my kid's head. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And my wife was just like, has God ever not taken care of you? No. You think he's going to start now? No, no, shut up, woman. Like, let me have my pity party. No, God always takes care of us. God will never leave you hanging. And when you leave a life of generosity, the apostle Paul's like, one of the outcomes is God will take care of you. God has got your back. Then the last outcome we see is it would help those in Jerusalem not just meet their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. We read verses 12, 13, and 14. Paul talks about, yes, this is going to help meet their physical needs. This offering that you're giving through your church to help meet the needs in Jerusalem, it's going to meet their physical needs, but God's also going to use it to help meet their spiritual needs. This offering is going to be used as a praise to God. This offering is going to cause them to worship in ways they wouldn't have. This offering is going to increase their faith. This offering is going to increase their prayer life. This church, they're going to see your radical generosity, and they're going to start praying for you. This church is going to be helped physically and spiritually. So church, when we are radically generous week in and week out, God uses it to, yes, meet physical needs, but also to meet spiritual needs. Think about it. There's people sitting here right now who the grace of God has saved and changed their life, and they've been discipled, and they're growing in grace and knowledge. And the reason they're sitting here is because there were some people who were here before them that said, I'm going to consistently and faithfully and sacrificially give so that other people can know Jesus. There's people who are here right now, you're sitting here because somebody else was faithful to give and somebody else was faithful to sacrifice. And when we give, we have a part in them coming to know Jesus Christ. That's why we give to missions. That's why we give through our local church. That's why we are generous so that other people can come to know him. Paul says that these people are going to love you for allowing the grace of God to work through you. And then they're going to be praying for you. They're going to see your radical generosity and be like, hey, man, we need to pray for those people. They're sacrificing. Let's pray that God meets their needs. You see, the grace of God always produces generous giving. Now, as Paul is wrapping up these last two chapters, Verse 15 almost kind of sticks out. When you read it by itself, you think, what's that have to do with giving? But in this last verse, he gives us our ultimate motive for giving. And really, 
I, I call it, it's a doxology of things. It's this amazing little verse. Paul's like, with all this talk about giving, let's take a moment and just thank God for what he gave us, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Words will never do justice what Jesus has done for us. We try. We sing our hearts out. We preach our hearts out. We give. But Paul's like, it's so amazing. It's indescribable. This is the motive. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what fuels our giving. It's what fuels our generosity. Giving ought to be an expression of appreciation to God for sending Jesus. I mean, John 3.16, arguably the most uh, well-known verse in Scripture. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. His only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel of Jesus is what fuels our giving. Paul has grounded this entire subject in the grace of God and the amazing grace that we have been given. It starts with God's grace. Yes, first, chapter 8, verse 1. It ends with God's grace, 9, 15. And all in the middle, it's all the grace of God. Giving is just simply an attempt to express gratitude for the inexpressible gift that we've been given. Our abounding good works flow from Christ's abounding grace. The distribution of our resources flows out of his distribution of his grace. We give because he has given us a multitude of blessings. Giving naturally flows from our obedient confession to the gospel of Jesus. The grace of God produces generous giving. I want you to imagine with me for a church for a moment. Imagine what it would look like if we as a church really got a hold of this on a deep down level. And we said, look, we're not about just following some command to hide our lack of love, but we love God so much that the grace of God is going to lead us to do even more than the command. Like 10%, I want to give 20. Imagine what the grace of God, imagine the impact we could make in the city of Fresno if we were like, we're going to be like those churches. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to radically be generous. I read a study uh, that was done in 2016. I, I think I've shared some of these stats with you before. Uh, but it said that tithers, people that give 10%, make up, on average, 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. So average church in America, about 10 to 25% of people in that church give at least 10%. Christians, on average, are only giving at 2.5%. So the average Christian gives 2.5% of their income. Compare that to what was happening in the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3%. So on average, the average Christian gives less than what they did during the Great Depression. Now, when we hear those stats, that can actually give us, uh, it makes us feel guilty a little bit, right? Like, oh, wow, that's kind of pathetic. Um, but that's not the point. The, the, the point I want to make by sharing this is imagine what would happen if every believer just said, I'll, I'll give at least 10%. I'm going to allow the grace of God to do something. I'll, I'll, I'll give at least 10% of my income. That same study said this is what would happen if every Christian gave 10% of their income. It would be an extra $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. This is w the impact that could have on our world. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in just five years. I mean, imagine there's this guy running for political office, and somebody stands up in an open forum and says, what are you going to do about world hunger? And that politician said, yeah, church has got that one covered. What hunger? Church took care of it. Tw $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. No more illiterate kids. No more not being able to read. No more being hindered because you can't even read words. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five worlds. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. Imagine a missionary never has to stop what he's doing, 
come back and ask churches for more money so he can continue what he's doing. Imagine missionaries not having been able to spend years and begging for support because it was just there. All overseas missions work would be fully funded, and that would leave an additional 100, and 100 to $110 billion for additional ministry expansion stateside. If we just gave 10%. Those are some amazing numbers, church. And when I see that, I'm like blown away. It's not that God just gave us this great commission and said, go reach the world, figure it out on your own. He's given us the means to reach the world. So here's our takeaway. Give so that others may know him. We give so that other people can know Jesus. We give so that other people can come to worship Jesus. Yes, we give so that needs are met so that they can worship Jesus. We give so that other people can glorify God. The grace of God produces generous giving. So church, bask in his grace. Enjoy it. Let it be the most real truth in your life. Remind yourself of how rich you are in Christ. And then give so that others can know him. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.